What's the point? With Anna Neal and Dan Chisholm. Welcome to the fourth episode of What's the Point Music Podcast. The art of recording music has changed rapidly in recent years, and whether you create at home or in a professional studio, your work isn't done until it's mastered. For this episode, we talked to Katie Tavini, who started out behind the mixing desk before becoming a mastering engineer. She has an impressive CV, including recent work with Arlo Parks, Nadine Shah, We Are Scientists and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. When I started, I didn't know any other engineers. Gender aside, I just didn't know any other engineers. To assume that someone who's female is just tagging along is a bit rubbish. You're not going to be employed as Beyonce's record producer at the end of this course. What's the point? Katie, welcome to our What's the Point music podcast. So the pandemic's had a massive impact on the music industry. It's great to see that you've been busy with a range of uh, different and interesting projects. However, there's a concern that with more people now recording at home, that the traditional art of music creation is being lost. Do you think recording is still an art? Oh, that's a really tough first question. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Oh, I thought we were going to start easy with like, how do you spell cat? Um, I think, um, yeah, recording is still an art and, you know, producing a really good record and and songwriting. And it's such a, a collaboration between so many people and so many disciplines. And, you know, even like selling the record is an art, obviously, if that's the sort of path you want to go down it's interesting to me because I work with a mixture of um, indie label artists and self-releasing artists it's really interesting to see how they seem to approach making a record quite differently and you know with the self-releasing artists they're just so involved in every part of the process and that is such a massive scale I think they need a big cheer or something because when you listen to something and you can feel a passion in it that's them. That's everything that they've sort of worked for. I'm not saying that with indie label artists, you don't get that. But it's um, I think it's a lot harder for self-releasing artists because you don't necessarily have the support of um, a manager or a label or, you know, just help with the admin side of things. So for artists to want to be so involved in the recording and the producing and the mixing and the mastering stages when they've got so much other stuff to think about as well. It's incredible. Yeah, I think um, they're some of the toughest people out there. It's amazing. Don't you find, though, Katie, that one of the things which might happen is because people have got so used to being able to record music at home now, that everything's done on a budget and some of the skills, irrespective of whether that's a recording engineer on a session or someone mastering like yourself, isn't it likely that some of the skills get lost along the way and also that therefore the product which is released could be a lot better if only they spent more time on it? It could be technically better, but obviously you have to weigh up like streaming isn't really giving artists any money at all obviously for artists there's other ways to make money like um is it patreon patreon i'm never sure how to patreon i think patreon Bandcamp friday was amazing last year um for artists and you know so there are you know selling merch there is other ways for artists to make money but when you hear a good song you hear a really good song 
a good recording or a good mix can only do so much. You know, if you've got a terrible... If I wrote a song now, it'd be rubbish. Uh, but even with, like, you know, if I passed it to the greatest producer and mix engineers in the world, they probably wouldn't be able to do much with it. It'd still be rubbish because it would be my rubbish song that I've written. So I think it's really, you know, it's the it's the artist's skill that carries everything. If someone can't afford a producer, then they are going to have to self-record, I think. I've seen it quite a lot last year, actually, with friends who are producers, you know, having to sort of go, oh, well, I need to take on this job, but they've just let me know that they're on universal credit and they'd be paying for me with their savings. What do I do? I feel really morally shady. And that's really, really tough. And so I think it's quite... The current climate for musicians is quite precarious, especially because gigging isn't really an option at the moment to to pay for artists. But I do think it will get better. You've gone into a male-dominated industry, as it's been for years. Engineers, you don't see many female engineers doing music, and even less so uh, female mastering engineers. But what is it that drove you to do this? Oh, you know what? It's all been a happy accident. None of it was really calculated at all. Like, I studied music at uni, like so many other people, but I really started to love being in the studio. And we were encouraged to see the studio as a as a, as an instrument, as a creative tool at uni, and I really liked that. When I went to look around unis, there were some people who were, like, very strict sort of engineering, technical side of things, and that's not really me. But I used to spend all my time in the studios because I desperately didn't want to be, you know, just finish uni and go and be a violin teacher because no disrespect to violin teachers, but (laughs) um, I cannot cope with, you know, (laughs) I mean, I taught violin for a long time, but I'm not that sort of person that can be really, really patient with someone who's learning. Unfortunately, it just doesn't suit my skill. How painful that must have been. The intonation and the tonality and the squeakiness. Oh God, yeah. No, I don't I don't yeah. blame you on that one at all. <laughs> yeah. I think you've got to have the patience of a saint to do that for a living. But and I don't, so I kinda knew that that wasn't an option and that wouldn't make me happy. But when I was at uni I just tried to uh to spend as much time in the studios as possible. I didn't know anyone who worked in the music industry and I didn't know anyone who was an engineer but I just thought you know as soon as my degree's over I'm not going to be able to to have this facility ever again so I was just trying to do that and one of my tutors was like oh you never leave do you want some work in the studio for my mate and I was like sure I'll go and make tea for a bit (laughs) that's great (laughs) thanks so I started engineering at um Limefield studio in Manchester um for John Ellis and Bill Leader who are both just amazing and have, I don't know, they they taught me how to listen in a completely different way. And from there, I kind of started working at some studios around Manchester and then started going further afield. And it it was just all accident. It's just all who I've met. But like one of the main um, main reasons why I started learning how to master, I'm entirely self-taught at mastering. Like it's not something that people really teach. But I was, I was always terrible at mixing. 
and as an engineer, especially when you start <laughs> off, because like we've mentioned before, you know, artists or newer artists especially might not have the budget for a separate mix engineer. You're sort of expected to to mix as well as record sessions. And I was always so bad at it. Again, I think it's a patience thing. And also, I like finishing things. I don't like being in the middle of something where everyone's asking you different questions and it feels really chaotic. But someone online told me that if I wanted to learn how to mix better, learn how to master. Like now you can go onto YouTube and search for a mixing tutorial and you'll be like overwhelmed with the amount of content. Whereas that wasn't really there at all when I was starting to engineer. So I thought, all right, then I'll... I'll take some of these songs and learn how to master master them <laughs> and um, sort of try and match them up with the professional masters that came back. And from there, I could sort of work out, like, why mine didn't sound good. And it was a really long process of sort of working out what, what other mastering engineers were looking for and why they were making certain decisions. And that was a really interesting process. And then one day I just got a message on Facebook from some guy some guy, we still work together now, but going back 10 years ago, he just sent me this random message being like, I need something mastering right now. Can you do it? And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm not a mastering engineer. I'm just some self-taught person with a computer. <laughs> but we, you know, we we battled through it and got a, a good finished record. Um, and I really enjoyed that process. And so after that, it was just a sort of, I don't know, it kind of snowballed. Like, people just kept on asking me to master stuff. And then it wasn't really until, like, two years ago that I actually called myself a mastering engineer. <laughs> what is your experience of being in this particularly male-dominated arena? Oh, that's a loaded question, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I think transitioning to mastering and... You know, it's just me in my studio. I don't do any attended sessions. I used to go to some, like, industry events, but now I never really see anyone because of lockdown. I always hated those industry events, but actually now I'm really missing them. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to say, when I was doing um, studio engineering, I did not have the best experience or experiences like when I started out working at Limefield Studio for John and Bill, I think I was kind of spoiled. They were so amazing and, it, you know, gender wasn't an issue at all. And I was, you know, just part of the team and all of the artists that we worked with were just, you know, it's cool. But I think my first experience of, hang on a second, something's weird, is... Um, Oh, there was two that, like, really stick in my head. One, I was at a gig between bands. I was with a group of people, and there were some people that I didn't know, and they were just like, oh, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a studio engineer. And the guy was just like, what plugins do you use? And I was like, I don't know, I really like the Sonox ones, but some of the stock Logic ones are really good too. Um, <laughs> and he was just like, well, if you don't have the isotope ones, you're not a real engineer. And I was like, right. <laughs> Idiot yeah. is the word you're looking for. <laughs> My plug-in is bigger than your plug-in. That's, ah, uh, yes. I can sympathise with that, yes. Yeah, I think it's just like that sort of competitive element or something, which I really don't agree with at all. 
but yeah so I don't think that was necessarily a gender thing I think that was just a <laughs> oh um okay <laughs> it's just the first thing that made me feel awkward about working as an engineer was that guy and then the second one was I went to um the music production show in in 2011 and I was on a panel with the music producers guild and I'd gone with a friend and we were just doing it like a lap of the trade show bit before the panel because we had some time to kill and every booth we passed they wanted to speak to my friend who's a drummer and doesn't give a shit about Sorry. No, you go for it. We, we, we are very open to all sorts of language. We work in the music industry, so that's fine. We've had far worse. Yeah. Don't worry already. That was just me as well. <laughs> but yeah, my friend who's a drummer who really didn't care about anything to do with music production, they were, you know, all the people who were standing outside the booths were talking to him and ignoring me. And he was like, I don't care about this stuff go and talk to her and everyone was really surprised and so that was quite interesting to just see how differently people treated me as opposed to treating my friend that was really eye-opening because I'd never experienced anything like that before I without having a conversation with someone you don't know what they're into obviously you're going to assume that if they're at a music production exhibition then they're sort of going to be interested in that but to assume that someone who's female is just tagging along is a bit bit rubbish do you find though that that has now changed because i sort of sense and i do recognize a what a lot of what you've said there because i think that there you know everybody sees it and has seen it as a male dominated industry for such a long time there had to be the sea of change but i get a sense we're seeing that now we're seeing female drummers we're seeing a lot more female uh, rock artists for example we're seeing um, female engineers like yourself coming to the fore if other people haven't known about them they're discovering them because well let's face it everybody brings something different to the mix as would gender along the way bring something different to the mix and so I sense there's been a real sea of change now do you would you agree with that? I think now that um, social media is more you know it plays a much bigger role in our lives it's easier to find people there's a lot of women in music different groups which are amazing happening and so it's a lot easier there is a sort of strength in numbers I think it's easier to feel more comfortable about putting yourself out there and what you do out there and owning it in a public space if you know that sort of behind the scenes your mates are cheering you on um, I think that's really important it's just a lot easier to be be visible and be heard now when I started I didn't know any other engineers gender aside I just didn't know any other engineers because I knew of them but we were all working in different studios at different times and so you know you just never met whereas now you just search for audio engineer on Twitter and you've got millions so it's a lot easier for you know anyone to connect which is amazing. When you listen to um, songs which have been mastered not everybody fully appreciates what the process is and, and why it is so critical to the artist's work. Would you care to just explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so there's um, there's a few reasons why mastering is really important. I think the main one is mastering's a quality check. And if you, especially if um, 
you know, you're self-producing and you've you've been sat on a record for a year or something, you're going to be really, really used to everything that happens. And so if there's a little bit of talking left on the end of a microphone clip, or, you know, at the end of a take or whatever, that might be really blended in to you. But for a mastering engineer who's sort of hearing it for the first few times, that's going to stand out like a sore thumb. So just kind of catching things like that that could be better and, you know, feeding back on the mix. Is is the mix functioning as good as it could be? Like, can can we hear the bass, for example? (laughs) Um, Or is the bass making our hair flap in the wind? Um, (laughs) You know, just to make sure that... um, everything is intended and can sound as good as it can be. So I think that's really important because when you're releasing something, it's all really frantic and you've got so many, you're juggling so many different things, trying to get everything together and information um, to upload to the distributors. And it's a, you know, it's a hectic time. So I think the quality check is really, really important. It's just having someone you know, even if it's not a mastering engineer, just having someone new listen to it and be really, really critical before it's released is is really a good thing. And then um, a huge part of mastering is creating formats. So, for example, if you've got a record that's 10 tracks long, you probably want to get some instrumental versions of those mastered as well to be sent to, to sync companies or whatever and so then that's 20 different files and then you know you might want final sides which are at 48k for example but then your online distributor cd baby or whatever will only accept 44.116 bit files and so you sort of have to have all of these different formats in order and that's quite a big job and so i think people don't fully understand how many you know when we send over final masses how many files we're gonna send over you know if if an artist wants to release a cd then they'll need a ddp file for that which contains all of the information about the cd and so there there is a lot of different formats to create and that's one of the things that um you know online mastering programs like lander it's online mastering but it's not actually mastering because they're not then all they're doing is audio processing. They're processing your audio to make it sound a bit better, but they're not quality checking your music if you upload it and the tail of the last note cuts short for whatever because you've forgotten to sort of extend the range that you're you're exporting when you bounce your mix down, then that's that. It's not going to say, oh, by the way, you might want to um, just take a look at the, the fade out on this. And also they won't provide those final formats they'll probably send you either an mp3 or a wav file and that's that all it is is audio processing it's almost a really dumbed down version and it's quite hard explaining to people who are perhaps using a mastering engineer for the first time why it's different and you know how much is involved with mastering how important is mastering you know i think a good mix is more important than a than a good master if I was an artist, I would probably spend most of my budget on a really good mix engineer who I got on well with, could communicate well with, and who I liked their work. I think that is more beneficial because 
a good master will make an average mix sound a little bit better, but a good master will make an amazing mix sound incredible. If you mix your track in your bedroom, you don't really know a lot about mixing and the mix sounds, you know, quite lifeless and not where you want it to go. If you send that to the world's best mastering engineer, they're not going to turn it into a Radio 1 banger. That's not really how it works. Mastering is probably like the the last 2% of goodness that you can squeeze out of something. It's not, it's not huge, but it is really important. The icing on the cake. That's it. There are times when you listen to it and you just sort of go, well, I mean, I sort of go, oof, blimey, what on earth were they thinking when they did that? There was a time, you know, back end of the 90s into early 2000s where loudness was everything, volume. So, you know, you bought the new Oasis album and it was absolutely off the Richter scale, you know, crazy. But there was one album which um, Robbie Williams recorded, which I, I often listen to that and think to myself... I wonder what that would have sounded like had that have been mastered differently, simply because it is literally what I call a knee- needle bender. You know, when you're looking at the, <laughs> you're looking at your VU meters or your your PPM meters, and you think that's just holding solid. It's not moving. It's like the umbrella in the wind. You know, and you you must feel that way when you listen to some some work that really. Oh, I wish I'd have got my hands on that. I'd I'd have loved to have seen what I could have done with that. I don't know. You know. Oh, obviously there are things that I wish I had worked on from a a personal perspective, you know, like Dolly Parton, Beyonce, obviously. (laughs) I would love to work with them. But um, I don't really listen to things and think this could be done better. I think when I listen to music outside of work time, I'm totally switched off from work mode. Otherwise, I just would stop enjoying music. And I don't ever want that to happen. And so I, you know, when I listen to something, I'm kind of like, well, that's just how it is. The reason I cited the Robbie Williams recording specifically is because it clearly has got a really, really great mix going on. But it just seems that somebody just went a bit, you know, a bit over the top for me personally with, um, you know, just concentrating on loudness. And it just seemed to take a bit away from the quality of the, the music. I mean, there's lots of, um, you know, different trends happen and, you know, loudness was quite a big trend that did happen. I think now a pop artist would probably still be expected to be mastered very loudly, but I don't think it would be as extreme. But it, it sort of all comes down to taste and who you're working with as well and their taste. When you're mastering something, it'll probably be the artist, the label, the management company. They'll all have a say and they'll all need to sign off on the final masters. And if one of them thinks, oh, actually, this isn't loud enough, then it's a team effort. You've got to take their their taste into consideration. Because, I mean, you know, you, you, you being one who's worked on the, on the raw fill stuff, you know, you're, I can't imagine a day would ever dawn where we get something like a beautiful piece like Smetana's Voltava played by the raw fill banging out at a <laughs> full, full, fully compressed six on the, on the PPM. You well, know. I think, though, you have to be, <laughs> you have to sensitive. sort of be, yeah, sensitive to style, I think, is a big one. For example, the, uh, the punk records that I mastered you know, 10 years ago or whatever, if they were quiet, 
people would be so sad. You expect, you want it to hit you in the face, don't you? Yeah. Whereas, yeah, like you said, if um, if you had a massive orchestra playing something which was just smashed and the quiet sections were as loud as the loud sections, you'd be good and it'd really change. It wouldn't be appropriate, really, for the style. So I think you have to be quite sensitive to that. I'm loving the fact that you've worked with We Are Scientists. I remember seeing them in 2005. They were <laughs> awesome. I mean, there's, there's some amazing they're so names. They're good. Yeah, I know, they are. They're, they're fantastic lives. <laughs> you've got some amazing artists that you've worked with. And obviously you're working with producers that produce in their bedrooms. You're working with, you know, signed artists. You're working with independent artists like Nadine Shah. There's a whole wealth, Emily Sande, that type of thing. I mean, what is it like switching between those styles? And what is it like working in those different sort of situations? I don't know. I've never really thought about it before because it's my job to do my best on whatever project people want me to work on. I do think, you know, sometimes it feels a bit more pressured working on some projects. And that's not necessarily, you know, a well-established versus a newer artist comparison. But when, um, you know, when there's a very quick turnaround, for example, that can feel really, really high pressured because... Dan touched on before mastering can be a bit of an afterthought. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's really interesting. And I love working on music from artists of all different levels. I think if it was the same type of music every day, I'd get so bored. That's one of the things that, you know, keeps me really interested and motivated and inspired is just the the varied work that comes in, which is amazing. And I see that, you know, you used to talk about on your bio about how you played classical music, you watched punk bands, you studied acoustics, you know, you followed the careers of French electro artists. I'm wondering which <laughs> French electro artists those are. You know, do you think it's important to have a, a very diverse kind of musical palette to listen to a lot of this stuff to do the job that you're doing? I think if you're interested in mastering, then yes, definitely. Because, you know, sometimes people will email me and I've never even heard of the type of music that they're making before. And that happens more often than I'd like to admit, really, actually. <laughs> but then you, it sort of, it opens all these doors and you go and check out some of these different styles and find something that you love. And that's really, really cool. I think mix engineers and producers tend to specialise a little bit more, but with mastering, yeah, it's so varied and that that's what I love about it. We do need that next brand of engineers to come through and, frankly, we need more women too. Um, but when we've got the situation that we're currently in, it does rather make it um, difficult to see where these people are going to come from and how we're going to continue to move the industry forward with fellow professionals like yourself. Yeah, it, it's tricky. I think I think there's a problem and that problem is... Yes, there needs to be more women, but also I think that um, the music industry needs to be more accessible to um, people from different backgrounds. For example, it's not super accessible if you don't come from a really privileged background. And I think this is, you know, I see people who've been working as an engineer for two years and they've just smashed it because they've been able to live rent-free with their parents in London while they work as a runner for next to nothing. But that wasn't really an option for me. You know, I only went full-time mastering 
in September last year because I had to have a job on the side in order to pay my rent, um, invest in my studio um, while I learned mastering. So that's that's been a long 10 years of mastering evenings and weekends whilst working full time during the week. So I think that's a, a huge issue at the moment as well. And I can't, <laughs> with oh, Brexit, the government, everything um, happening right now, I can't see how that's going to change in the near future. I'd really like to see it change, but I can't see how it will, which is really sad. And also accessibility for for people with disabilities in this industry as well. I think that's quite important. But then obviously some disabilities aren't visible. I myself have one, but I don't go around going, I'm a disabled engineer, woo! Yeah. <laughs> because then you're automatically people will label you will label you for example a lot of people label me as a female engineer which I hate I'm just an engineer (laughs) whereas if I go around talking about my disability then all of a sudden you become the disabled female engineer so I think there's a lot of intersectionality that comes into you know how accessible the music industry needs to be and I think the thing that I've struggled with and that that I see now when I speak to sort of newer engineers or people who are studying music production is that no one really tells you what it's like to be freelance no one tells you that you're basically going to be running business I did not realize I was running business until like three years ago when I started hiring um, a studio in London And then all of a sudden I had to make X amount of money from mastering in order to pay for the studio hire. You know, no one tells you that you're going to have to go out and find your own work. I think college and uni courses are really, um, they are very avoidant of that. And I think that's partially because, you know, if tutors are academics then they're not going to realise And also, you know, I have worked in audio education and I have seen sort of the dark side of that. There is a lot of, um, (laughs) you know, bums on seats, got to get bums on seats. But yeah, it's very real. And so, you know, I've been to trade shows with, you know, for like UCAS trade shows and stuff and been with companies that are basically selling teenagers their dreams, but not admitting you know, you're not going to be employed as Beyonce's record producer at the end of this course. There's so much more that comes into it than um, than just doing a course. And I think that's really not spoken about at all. And, you know, when I talk to, to students on your engineers, students always have this really, you know, high hope that they're going to make a LinkedIn page and then someone's going to hire them. They're going to have a number one hit. And... You don't want to crush them and take that away from them because that enthusiasm is really, really necessary in this industry. Passion is everything. But at the same time, you have to be realistic. And then you speak to newer engineers who are like, oh, yeah, I'm really sad. I perhaps don't want to do this anymore. I'm looking into other options because no one's come and found me yet. And I think it's it's really important to have that conversation with people and 
be realistic, not be mean and crush dreams, but be realistic that, you know, you have to really, really put yourself out there. You have to learn some business skills. I'm still learning. It's so hard. I did not realise. And, you know, I've been doing this for a long time now and it's it's really new to me. And yeah, I think there's got to be a much more honest conversation had. Dave Rowntree, we spoke to, didn't we, Anna? And he was saying precisely that you have to be almost entrepreneurial now. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm hoping my students aren't listening to this, but um, yeah, we, we, uh, I try. I try to keep it. With I, I, I sympathise with the having many roles thing. That is that is a career in the music industry now. You have to have a portfolio career. Quite often, a second job that's outside of music as well as doing music. But it is the freelance side of things, especially if you are creative or you're involved in the artist side of things. You know, production, mastering, can be particularly challenging and difficult. And then trying to marry that with the enthusiasm can also be quite difficult and quite crushing and as an old cynic now yes (laughs) Dan's shaking his head at me now I was just listening to you say old (laughs) I feel I've been crushed the industry's crushed me I'm old can I just remind you I'm in the room here (laughs) do you think that experience of being in recording studios is as vital now as it used to be, considering the way music is produced? I think there's a place for both. And I think there's a place for, you know, a combination of the two as well. It's amazing how much more accessible studio equipment is. And it's really, really cool that people want to have a bit of a home set up and learn. But also, I still get a huge buzz when I go to a big studio. (laughs) Like, it's amazing. And you've got all of these really cool people under one roof who are all participating and making a record or whatever. That's an amazing thing. And you you don't really get that experience at home. There's no real way to recreate that. So, yeah, I definitely think there's a place for both. But if people want to start off in the engineering world and, uh, you know, potentially progress to a career, it's a question of, how they best set about it. But as for mastering engineers, are there that many really, like yourself? I mean, I don't I suppose, know, you, you know. know. I mean, there's um, Sabby Road mastering, obviously. Um, there's Metropolis mastering. There's Alchemia Air. But they're really the the big mastering houses, the big three. And then there's, there's Fluid mastering. So there's a, there's a few smaller mastering houses with one or two engineers. And then there's kind of, I know maybe three or four people like me who are sort of a more DIY set up. That suggests to me there's room for more then. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. I think it's um, it's hard with mastering because it's it's so traditionally, you know, previously you you were a transfer engineer when you were a mastering engineer which requires a lot of skill, you know, to get a recording from tape onto onto vinyl. I mean, I don't cut, but that, so mastering's really evolved. I think it's the most evolved bit of the recording process, I'd say. Obviously, digital recording happened and plug-in, you know, new plugins are coming out and they're sounding amazing, but it's not really changed that much. There's nothing that's come and been you know, wildly changed the job, whereas mastering has. And I think previously to be a mastering engineer, A, the equipment until now has been so inaccessible and 
plugins until now haven't really been great. Whereas now you can get a, a sort of home mastering setup for, f- I say fairly cheap, not really cheap <laughs> at all, but cheaper. <laughs> Tell me where, Kate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but cheaper than previously. It is more accessible um, finance wise. But also, I think with mastering, previously it's been expected that you, you know, you're a mastering assistant for 10 years and then you learn from whoever you're assisting and then you're finally a mastering engineer. Whereas now anyone can, you know, get a computer and a set of headphones. I'm not saying that's how I master my music (laughs) and I'm not saying that's how easy it is. But in theory, you could get those things go online and tell people that you're a mastering engineer you could do whether (laughs) you know whether people would want to work with you or not or whether the stuff that you were mastering would sound any good at the end of it is a different story as part of the recording process what is the point of mastering okay the point of mastering is to quality check your mixes and recordings um, to do some audio processing if needed. I've got to specify if needed because it's not always needed. Um, to get, you know, an extra 2 to 4% out of your mix and then to create the final formats for your release. That's really important. Awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for coming and having a very open chat with us about all sorts of things. I think I went slightly off on a tangent, but you know, hey, it's a podcast. We're allowed to do that. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely to meet you both. What's the point? What's the point?